Hey, welcome to Care to Share, where the personal is clinical. My name is Jesse Greenfield, and today we're talking mental health care. As the two dialogue participants and I sat on comfy couches in a dimly lit therapy office to get ready for this dialogue, I was thinking about how it's different than the others. First, these two people already know each other, and know each other well, because they're each other's patient and therapist. I tried to avoid this dynamic in other dialogues to allow people to speak more freely and without fear of saying something negative in front of their own patient or therapist. But I actually think their relationship added a layer of vulnerability to this conversation that I really appreciated. Second, I think that mental health care might be inherently more personal and require much more of a level of communication to be effective. Spoiler alert, it seems like the participants feel that way as well. This feels different from the other types of care that we've been speaking about. Sure, it'd be great to have a provider acknowledge my humanity when I break my leg, but, you know, they can still fix it without knowing anything about me. I learned a lot from this dialogue and from these two empathetic and vulnerable people, and I hope you get as much out of it as I did. I'll let them introduce themselves. <laughs> well, I'm here in my capacity as a therapist, so I'm a white, mostly straight, cisgender woman. I'm a mother um, married to a cisgender man. Um, and I'm a narrative therapist. I work a lot with, um, new parents and a lot with queer and trans folks. Um, I guess that's it for now. <laughs> uh, so I'm here as a patient, I guess. Um, I am a white cisgendered woman, um, who identifies as queer. I am married to a white cisgendered woman and I'm a new mama. Um, I have an eight-month-old, and that's me. <laughs> cool, great. Maybe you want to talk about your previous history. I don't know, I guess acknowledging the fact that you know each other, because this is a little different than the other ones that we've done. If you want to speak sure, about that yeah. a little bit. I guess we could maybe talk about how we... I, I, I actually don't know if I know how we got connected or how you found me. Moms of Kimberbell. <laughs> so yeah, we could, so there's a so this is a very small um, community in terms of new parents, and um, there's a Facebook group called Moms of Camberville that connects a lot of folks who are either pregnant or have just given birth to children, and there's different cohorts. So I was in one of the older cohorts, and I think my name has been thrown around as a therapist who is also a mom who lives in the community. came at just the right time. I was not seeing a therapist at the moment, um, but my OB recommended my looking for another one um, as I got closer to my birth. And um, yep, and your name popped up in my cohort and I sent you an email and here we are. <laughs> you have followed me through the different iterations of my practice. So I have mm -hmm. I've worked, um, I used to have an agency job and, and do private practice on the side, and so um, I've, um, I had an office space where you were seeing me when mm -hmm. you were pregnant, and then I was able to see you at your house a few times, mm -hmm. which was something I also did more of before I was here, mm -hmm. um, and then I just started doing full-time private practice work in this space um, in September. We've been together through, I don't remember how pregnant I was when I started seeing you. Probably after first trimester. Definitely. Yeah, you were, yeah, I think um, you were. Five or six months in, probably. Yeah, and the home visits were particularly lovely. Also, when I was super pregnant and when my baby was just born, it was a real blessing to have, to have her come. 
to us. <laughs> Anything you're curious about? About each other or mm-hmm. about our experiences of care? Yeah, I guess because the, the basis of this project is getting getting people to share about that, like what it has felt like for them in their role. So maybe this is kind of not a way to step out of that role, but to kind of explore maybe what it's like from the other side in a way that maybe hasn't been feasible before or like hasn't seemed like part of the professional. Yeah, it's tricky. I, I mean, I think sort of the prem. I understand the premise of your project. Yeah. And I think I, I don't know if you would agree with this, but I feel like I already operate a little bit outside of part of my interest in doing my own practice is that I don't, I'm not a big fan of respectability politics. And mm-hmm. I, and I don't love the ways that providers are asked to be boundaried. Um, it, it, unnecessarily like I, mm-hmm. I I think to me you know what's important around boundaries is that um, I'm not doing my own processing work with my clients <laughs> like mm-hmm. I am here you know creating a space for them um, but particularly in my work with new parents um, the fact that I am also a parent is really important um, and I share a lot of that in session with permission mm-hmm. um, and I think I've we've checked in a few times about sort of my use of self and mm-hmm. how it's feeling and whether there's, you know, whether, whether there's enough space or whether yeah. you're feeling like, cause I, I, I do, I try not to be too, I try not to be too forthcoming with my opinions about parenting mm-hmm. stuff, but it is so obvious that I have opinions and mm-hmm. I'm not really trying to hide it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, like your role as a parent is like critical to like helping me through my own parenting struggles. You know, I just don't, I don't think it would work we didn't have your experience to draw on and, and share, you know, um, especially with things around like pumping and breastfeeding and things that are so specific to new parents in particular, like, yeah. Does that feel different than other care you've received around being a parent than maybe more direct personal care? Did like, did you feel that with your OB or? Yeah, I had a very close relationship with the NP with whom I received care throughout my pregnancy, but even so it wasn't like as like emotional as the care that I received with, with Anna, obviously. So I think the, the uniqueness of our relationship is that she's able to provide emotional support, but also like ground level, you know, <laughs> like <laughs> put your pump parts in the fridge cause it'll save you time. So like mm-hmm. that combination of, of things is really helpful for me. It's been invaluable. So <laughs> it's great. And I do notice I talk about myself more with my clients who are parents than with my clients who aren't. Mm -hmm. But I also am really pretty conscious about dismantling this idea that like I'm an expert and I am well and I do things right and you're here because you're troubled and you need help. Mm -hmm. So, you know, a lot of the stuff that I share is are like my harder moments. Mm -hmm. I'm not, you know, I I think I share of successes too, but Mm -hmm. I think I try to be conscious about it and I've told some pretty vulnerable stories in session about moments that are really, you know, were, were really difficult or things that I thought were lows for me as a parent around, like, losing my patience with my kid or, you know, being super sleep deprived and, like, banging my head into the wall because I like, couldn't function anymore. Um, and those are stories that, you know, are, are pretty, are really personal. Who I, you know, I feel like I have friends I haven't told those stories right. to. But I, I want people to know that, that there is no perfection in motherhood and, you know, this is hard stuff and it's hard for everyone or at least it's hard for me. Yeah. 
No, I feel like you do that so well. I mean, I don't, we were talking recently about how parenting could be sort of performative, especially mm-hmm. in this area, um, because we're in a very highly educated, highly competitive geographical area, and who knew parenting gets <laughs> wrapped up in that as well. Right. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, so I really appreciate the honesty. That's something that we actually have been talking about a lot in terms of like power dynamics and breaking down the idea of like one person being an expert and one person mm-hmm. needing to learn from them or not having the answers at all. And so it sounds like this dynamic is very conducive for breaking that down. And that, yeah, yeah, that's been my experience. I mean, I do seek out providers for myself who I feel like are authentic. I, I, you know, it's not, it's not so important to me that I know about them personally, but, you know, I think about, um, like my primary care doctor, um, who I saw a few times after my daughter was born and how she spoke about her own experiences of parenting and, you know, kind of gave us advice. And Mm -hmm. I do, I look for that. My teacher, I talk about the most mm-hmm. you've heard me talk about this woman, Janet Bystrom, who's from Minneapolis, um, really modeled for me, like showing up as a therapist in an authentic way and, mm-hmm. and, and being able to say things like, if I seem a little distracted today, I'm, I'm going through some, some intense stuff in my personal life. Like I'm, I'm here and I'm committed to being here with you right now, but I do want to name if you're noticing some, some strange energy, you know, those were things that Janet would do and, um, kind of show me how to do through her through her mentorship of me so I feel like I've had some good teachers there's weirdness right if you can tell that your provider is distracted or you can tell that something's going on but they don't name it and I think a lot of times people take that personally or they Mm -hmm. think that like their provider is tired of them or you know annoyed with them or you know um and so just just you know this I don't know there's just like all these dumb facades that we put up to to be professional that I think are actually not super helpful to people. Yeah, I had a similar relationship with my NP as I mentioned, in part because we worked together for a long time throughout the pre-pregnancy and getting pregnant process and everything. But I've certainly been in situations where, you know, my experience resonates with yours and you know, I publish research for a living, so I'm very like keen to align myself with the evidence-based care. Um that was really important to us when we were picking a pediatrician. Um so I try to do that for my own care providers as well, but Definitely for my for my kiddo. So. <laughs> and we actually had the same doula. I feel like yes. we both had <laughs> yeah. that experience with our with our doula. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, just a very like good connection. Yeah, and relationship. I can't believe I forgot about that. Yeah, I mean, the best. I think you've said this too. The best money probably mm-hmm. I've ever spent was on was on Kara. Yeah, we both had very different births, but she was like equally as amazing for. Both of us. Was getting a doula at all recommended by your OB or? Um, I think for me it was it was Moms of Camberville that convinced yeah. me that that was necessary um, because there were folks there who had already had children and I was in that group before my daughter was born. We hired our doula pretty late in pregnancy. I mean by Camberville standards, maybe a couple of months before she was born. <laughs> but just reading other people's experiences and particularly the idea that. The doula is actually there for your partner as much as for you, or maybe more for your partner than for you. Um, so just thinking about kind of what my husband and I wanted and um, and what would support that. We were at the birth center, so we had every reason to think we were going to, you know, get support for our choices. 
but the reality of birth is you're actually alone quite a lot if you don't have a doula. I mean, it's just you and your partner and whoever you choose to have in the room, but um, the, the doctor or the midwife or the OB is not actually there until you're actually like having the baby. And that could be, you know, hours and hours and hours. Days. days. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. Oh no. Yes. Yeah, I was um, feeling torn because I, the way that my OB practice worked, I couldn't see a certified nurse midwife um, unless I left my beloved NP, and I wasn't willing to do that. So as, as I was talking about wanting someone sort of at the birth as long as possible, you said, it doesn't sound like you need a midwife, it sounds like you need a doula, you're just amazing queer doula, um, and my wife was sort of like, do we need a doula? Um, and then she met them and she was like, oh, we need them. <laughs> They're lovely and grounded and know all the things. <laughs> and yeah, we're both just eternally grateful that they came into our lives and still send updates with pictures of the kiddo Aww. and yeah, just to let them know. So yeah, and I had a marathon birth, so she was with us through the whole thing, which was lovely. Yeah. <laughs> so it sounds like it was a very much of a community kind of thing that like got you this information and mm-hmm. yeah do you yeah. feel like you've received like other health information that way through this community or maybe others like where you go to like ask people for help or who do you go to i mean there are parts of the moms of camberville that are troubling in terms of gender and parental roles and that sort of thing um that being said like i have gotten amazing advice and met some phenomenal people through that group yeah similarly I think I, I get a lot of resources there and just just through other um yeah I have a small group of parents or moms that I got connected to through a parents group um who I'm still in touch mm-hmm. with so I get resources from them I was going to say too when I'm looking for providers even though most of my identities are pretty mainstream I do I tend to seek out like either queer providers or folks from marginalized communities because they care about the same stuff that I care about. Mm-hmm. There's like a shorthand and, and some of the same stuff that you're getting at with your project, I think, around not having these like intense power differentials right. or having more of a social justice analysis or an intersectional understanding of where problems come from, pathologizing Western mm-hmm. medicine way of looking at the world. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, we're lucky in this area, being a queer patient, you know, that that I sort of take language and approach for granted from providers, but I've certainly been in situations where, you know, providers have either, like, slipped up or not remembered that I identify as queer, and those conversations are incredibly awkward, you know? Yeah, what does that feel like? I mean, yeah, I had a primary care provider who um, had forgotten that I was a lesbian and was, like, horrified that I wasn't on birth control, until I reminded her <laughs> of the situation, and she then was in turn horrified. But you know, right. a quick glance at the chart probably would have, you know. In mental health care, I think a lot, I mean, and I'm one of them, a lot of providers, including me, take either no insurance or only Blue Cross. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I take only Blue Cross because they're easier to deal with and I, and I get enough referrals that I don't need to be on any other panel. So it makes my life easier. Yeah. But there are, insur- you know, there are insurances that are less commonly taken or where the company is harder to deal with so there are fewer providers who accept it 
or you have to go to an agency and agencies have more turnover. So, um, you know, you might get connected with someone you like and that person might not stick around. Um, so I do think that there are things that make people have more or less choice and a lot of them have to do with class. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. So, you know, I come from, you know, my background is doing in agency work and, you know, at my prior position working with families, um, people basically couldn't fire us. I mean, they were, they were receiving care under contract through the state. So either the Department of Children and Families or the Department of Mental Health was paying for their care. And if they were unhappy with their provider for some reason, um, we would basically require them to mediate. I mean, we would not, there were, it, it, I, it depended. I mean, if someone were, if someone were feeling sort of like unseen or unheard because of some aspect of their identity that they felt like didn't line up well with the provider's approach, we were a lot more attentive to that. Um, but if someone was just dissatisfied with the care mm-hmm. and we didn't think that that was grounded, mm-hmm. they kind of had to stick with it or terminate mm-hmm. the care. Rich people, well-off people, we can fire providers for any reason. We can switch whenever we want for whatever little whim, you know, any little thing someone does that bothers us. Mm-hmm. And we never get pathologized for that. But mm-hmm. poor families, it's like, well, they're just, you know they're really combative or they're fishing for something better. I mean, it just gets like pathologized and mischaracterized in all these ways that are really problematic. So, Okay. So let's say you get a provider and your morals do align with them. Your values align with them in some way, but like, do you feel still like identity plays a role in the way that you communicate with them? If your identities are different or if they're similar. I mean, I certainly did as a pregnant queer person much more so than I ever did at any other time in my life and have since, you know, um, in terms of, like, prenatal care, you know. Yeah, I mean, there are just lots of, I'm trying to think what I want to say, facets, you know, that are yeah. different to the way that I was able to conceive, you know. So wanting providers who sort of inherently understood that or didn't. Absolutely. We're familiar with the process, we're familiar with my family structure, but um, that was important, obviously. I didn't want to have to explain myself at any point in the process. I think one of the other reasons why I think it's important to me to be transparent about my identities is, is because I do work with communities that I'm not a part of, and I'm not trying to like misrepresent myself. But I find that mostly what people are looking for is not necessarily someone who shares their identity, but just somebody that they don't have to educate. Yeah, mm-hmm. totally. Someone who is going to be clear about their figure, their gaps or their... I just, I get exposed to a lot of problematic ways that providers talk about their care. Like I was talking with um, a coordinator at one of the local universities, not yours, but I won't say which <laughs> one, um, who was saying, you know, we're just having such a hard time getting a good list of providers who work, who can work with transgender students. Um, we have some folks who will work with transgender students if their issue is not around transition. Hmm. And I was like, what does that mean? <laughs> and I think what it means is if, someone is trans but that the fact that they're trans is literally and never a part of their identity that they want to bring into therapy you know I mean that's that's my reading of that is like if you don't understand anything about trans identities how are you going to effectively work with a trans person yeah it's not about like can you write them a letter for surgery that's like Mm -hmm. a I've written like two letters in the time that I've been in practice here I mean I've 
it's not a big, I mean, people are like, oh, it's all about, like, gatekeeping and writing letters, and that's very little of Mm -hmm. what trans-affirming and trans-inclusive care is about. It's really just about, like, not being an asshole. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it wasn't important to me that Anna was queer or not, just that we, exactly what she said, that there's, like, an understanding, a knowledge, like, a shared language, you know, and we're not raising our child gender neutral, but like I believe that gender is a social construct and so we want to raise our kiddo in that culture as much as possible. So it was important to me that she understood where, you know, where it was coming from and so how to, it was something that we put in our birth plan, you know, just something that was important throughout the process. So. Yeah, we've had some interesting conversations about gender and femininity because we both have children who seem to be girls. <laughs> um, mine, mine is four, and she, is, she is definitely seems to be a girl, and is quite, um, quite sure about that at this point in her life. To be determined. Your child is a baby. Um, but we have talked, I think, we are both fairly femme-presenting people, mm-hmm. and my child, as soon as she had a choice, um, was a very femme-presenting mm-hmm. person. Um, and I did, you know, have more gender neutral stuff for her before Mm -hmm. it was clear that she would like to wear purple all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, but, um, but yeah, I think we've talked about sort of evaluating, the valuing of, or the devaluing of femininity. Mm -hmm. Um, because when we talk about gender neutral, we're basically everything that falls into the category that most people consider to be gender neutral could also be described as masculine. Mm. Like, there isn't any space in gender neutral for femininity. Right. Um, so true. I mean, at a very, like, tactical level, when I look for clothes for my kiddo, used or new, like, I only look in the boys' section. Mm. You know, there is, I mean, yeah, because that's where gender neutral lies. So it doesn't exist in the in the girls' section, which is, again, I mean, a whole separate podcast. Right, of course, <laughs> of course. <laughs> I just read a great Instagram post from the parent of a gender expansive or gender creative kiddo who gets very activated by being asked to shop in either the girls or the mm-hmm. boys section and is, is adamant that he is a boy even regardless of what he mm-hmm. might be wearing and she'd just come up with a strategy where she would sort of do a shop on her own, mm-hmm. gather together a collection of items that she thought he might be interested in in a neutral part of the store and like let him shop from that selection. Yeah. But you yeah. have to do that. No. Right, it's a lot. Yeah. 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 Sounds really tough. <laughs> Sounds like there are a lot of choices to be made at all times. Yeah, I mean, it starts from birth, you know, it's really interesting. Yeah. And you are socializing them, right? Right. So if you think gender is a social construct, you're responsible for how it gets constructed for right. your child to right. a certain extent. I mean, it's a lot of pressure. It's a yeah. lot of pressure. <laughs> you know? And yeah, I mean, we've like, carefully curated you know because we still can because the baby's eight months but like at a certain point we will let you know let them decide whatever they want to decide and yeah and it is in the water I mean yeah my kid comes home singing frozen yeah having never seen it exactly yeah I mean like she's in her care so like eventually we will yeah Disney will fall on our house I'm sure (laughs) sooner rather than later (laughs) yeah talking about constructs and just like the way that people are socialized I want to talk a little bit about like mental health care more generally and like you working and you receiving health care like if that if that was ever stigmatized or your experiences of starting that kind of care and like what that felt like the thought process 
I started going to therapy when I was coming out in college, um, and I'd say the only realm in which it was stigmatized was by my parents. Mm-hmm. Um, other than that, I'm, I'm fairly open about it. Um, well, slightly more closed in the workplace, you know, depending on who I'm speaking to, but in general, very open about it. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty open about it in my personal life. Um, I do still see a therapist. I kind of think all therapists should see therapists. <laughs> yeah. And I tell all my supervise I supervise therapists, and I tell all my supervisees that as well. And like you know, supervision is not therapy, and you still need your own support for your actual stuff. I do disclose to people that I'm in therapy to my clients that I'm in therapy sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm obviously yeah, I think I've said that to you before, and if not, I'm saying it now. But that's a place where I feel a little bit of stigma. Um, not I don't know, just like do my clients expect me to be fully resolved? Like do they expect mm-hmm. me to not need this kind of support, or will it challenge their understanding of me to know that I'm also in therapy, or will that help? I do have questions come up when I do that. that kind of goes back to what we were talking about before with like the breaking down and power dynamics Mm -hmm. like through that kind of disclosure I think that's interesting and cool yeah it's definitely not something I share with everyone it is that illusion of illusion of togetherness or illusion (laughs) of like professionalism that it looks a certain way and requires a certain amount of Mm -hmm. boundaries or something that's interesting both my parents are therapists, so we've had we've had conversations like this a lot. Um, What's that like? Yeah, right. I, I guess you would actually probably understand. Everyone is always like, "Do they psychoanalyze you?" That's the first question everyone asks, mm-hmm. and it's like, "No, they're just my parents." Like, yeah. you know, there are people when they ask me how my day is. There's no ulterior motive. Right. They just are people who know me well and yeah. care about me and want to hear about my day. It's it's been it's good. <laughs> they're cool. <laughs> But yeah, totally. Like hard to hard to expect these people because I see them as real humans. While mm-hmm. maybe their clients might not. And um, like my mom also has her own private practice, and my dad works in a hospital, so it's like a very different mm-hmm. kind of dynamic. And maybe maybe yeah, they're put on weird pedestals, or like their their ideas are valued in a certain way because they are professionals and they obviously are qualified to do their jobs, and I'm I'm sure they're great at what they do. But yeah, having that mm-hmm. expectation of them, yeah, being fully actualized. Mm-hmm. It's weird. Although, I always think when someone becomes, like, more human, for me anyway, in my relationships, it makes them that much stronger. You know, I think about all the people that I admire most in the world, and part of it is because they're, they've showed their humanness, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I have people sometimes sort of ask that of me. Like, can mm-hmm. I know a little bit about you? Like, I would feel safer if sure. you could tell me X, Y, or Z, and... To me, that's like a, an excellent reason for self-disclosure because the only, I mean, the only reason not to share pieces of yourself as a professional, as a therapist, I think, is, is if it would interfere with someone else's process. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, are there, like, rules against doing that? Like, are, are there, when you were learning and getting your education, like, were they telling you not to self-disclose? Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean... Traditionally, like psychoanalytically, I think if you you are a you're supposed to I mean this is not how I was trained, but you're a blank slate, you're mm-hmm. a brick wall, like you are just reflecting. Mm-hmm. You are a surface against somebody against which somebody sort of creates a sense of of themselves and identity, huh. and you're supposed to bring nothing 
into the room. That's interesting. I didn't know. Would that be helpful? Like, no, no, no. No. Not for me, but it could be helpful for someone else. Yeah. You know, depending on... And a lot of people come to me and say, you know, I had this therapist who really didn't say very much and just mm-hmm. sort of nodded and said, mm-hmm, and I didn't feel pushed by that or I didn't feel right. like I was growing in that in that mm-hmm. space and and they're looking for something different. Mm-hmm. So I'm, def- I'm definitely not that. boundaries in school is so that people like don't work out their own stuff in their therapy mm-hmm. session yeah so you know the thing that you don't want to do is when someone's like the person who raised me was like very withholding and you know I just never had any space to be nurtured and you don't want the therapist to show up and be like oh yeah you know my parent was that way too and you know like mm-hmm. I'm still like noticing that in my life in this way um you know you don't want to be processing unresolved stuff mm-hmm. Um, that makes sense. But, yeah. I, but I also think the way that it shows up, if, if you're not locating it on yourself, is that you're, like, having this sort of, like, displaced, like, expert, like, some people who've been through this experience think this, which is, like, to me feels weird. And so if it's, like, if it's from my life, I sort of want to say... I know this because it's from my life. Mm-hmm. This isn't like something I read in a research journal. Mm-hmm. You know, again, like my primary guide is, is this for the person or is it for me? Mm-hmm. And I do occasionally catch myself crossing that line where I'm like, oh, I'm just, I'm really just chit-chatting right now. Like I haven't talked to anyone today. <laughs> like we're talking about television and we're just having a conversation. That's um, okay though. Don't you think a little bit of that? I mean, yeah. It's like no different than what I would do. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. If that took over, I think the thing that I want to be conscious of is that can get very comfortable. Mm-hmm. Sure. And so if that dynamic sort of gets dominant, then this space stops becoming a place where right. someone is actually bringing their stuff and becomes a place where we're just sort of connecting on a human level. That and makes sense, yeah. That's not what it's, that's not what they're paying me for. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Mm. But it sounds like it's maybe an aspect of it, like that connection seems important to at least some people, right? Like if you don't mm-hmm. connect with your therapist, like it can be an uncomfortable situation, you know, if you're not connecting well, I'm sure for me, certainly as the receiver of care, I'm sure also for the provider. Yeah. I mean, relationship is the number one determining factor about whether therapy is effective more, more than, I mean, approach, like all the things that therapists mm-hmm. think are important are not important in research. Um, like when they've done studies of positive outcomes in therapy, like the biggest determining factor is relationship. I think that's also so interesting because when we think about other types of care, like if I were to break my arm right now, the care that I receive from a doctor is not going to be like founded on our relationship and what that is like. I think that's what makes mental health care like very intentionally different and cool. Mm -hmm. Seems like you two communicate really well. Like that's what this whole field is about and maybe ideas of how to bring this still professional but communicative and like things based on feelings and connection with people how to bring that into a more clinical medical space yeah I mean I think integrated healthcare you know I mean it's it's tricky because therapists and social workers who are embedded in medical settings are shaped by those settings Mm -hmm. Um, so I interned my second year at a family medical practice 
Um, so it was like a primary care clinic um, that also had social workers. And part of the, re- and it was a residency um, for a, l- a lot of students, mm-hmm. doctors. Um, and so part of the role of the social work intern was to help teach the doctors empathy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and it wasn't working super well. Um, but I do, I think, you know, if you can take some of the power differential out of it, I think mm-hmm. that that kind of model where there are interdisciplinary teams um, mm-hmm. and um, people bringing different perspectives from different fields can be really um, a good way, I think, to build some more. I mean, I, you know, the idea that, like, someone's, you know, say somebody, well, this happened when I was an intern, like, someone came in after having spent the night in the ER, um, for, um, basically it was a panic attack, but, you know, when she went in, she didn't know whether it was physical or, yeah, I mean, it was physical, but whether it had a medical cause or an emotional cause. And, then she came to get checked out by her primary care doctor afterwards. And I think, you know, in a more traditional mainstream setting, I think it would be, have been very easy for that provider to just go, yeah, you're fine. Like, there's nothing physically wrong with you. You should go home now. Um, and because I was there and because I was current, like present when this happened, they could pull me in and I was able to do some um, grounding and de-escalation stuff with her so that she could go home in better emotional shape. Yeah, I think integrated stuff is interesting. Definitely. Yeah, breaking down hierarchies. I'm thinking about my own team at work, and part of why I think we're so successful and a close-knit team is that we really we lack a hierarchy. I mean, it exists in our actual structure, but in the way that we interact with each other, it doesn't exist, um, which I think makes for employee retention, you know, high employee retention on our team and just, like, high success rate, and I think the same could work well and a care setting as well. I'm just curious, are people also close personally? Like, do you feel like that, yes, back I to the think, human connection, does I that help? so. I think that's, I mean, I think my team is lovely. And so I think, <laughs> yeah, in part, we're, we've just formed great relationships, both personally and professionally. So, you know, something like that. And when we were interviewing for pediatricians, this is a segue, but yeah. um, there was a round table. And I also thought that that was very lovely. Um, and sort of, we were able to get to know him on a personal level before we had him provide care for us. Um, perhaps this exists for like primary care providers as well. I've never seen it offered in any other setting, but I think it could be useful. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I didn't know that that happened. Yeah, yeah the midwives at the Cambridge Health Alliance yes. do a meet the midwives mm-hmm. midwives yeah. um, thing when you're if you're planning to deliver there or if you're considering delivering mm-hmm. there. That's great. Yeah, it just kind of brings the human aspect back mm-hmm. to it a little bit more before you're like in the room to get, you know, in a more clinical setting. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think you have to know enough about the person to know if their opinion is valuable, (laughs) you know? Like if you don't trust them or if you don't know where their expertise comes from, then it's hard to know if you should believe what they say. Or if they care about what you have to say and like your opinions. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Are there other things in your experience like that you've had receiving care that have been really awesome, like things or certain experiences that you really valued? I mean, I think opportunities for people to give honest feedback about their experiences and for providers to genuinely be interested in growing from that feels like a big piece of it to me too. Um, And, you know, in the setting I was in before, I think that was always 
something we were trying to do more of. Um, they were integrating some practices from restorative justice and some of that as a way to sort of create, create safer spaces for the youth and families who were experiencing the services to talk about what that was really like for them. I think the challenge around that is that people who aren't satisfied are less likely to engage in those kind mm -hmm. of processes. And also that providers who are less interested in sort of growing and changing are less likely to create those kinds of spaces. Yeah, that's probably true. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if, I mean, I'm, that's not like from research. That's just something that I assume to be true. Mm -hmm. but yeah. yeah. And I think it all comes back for me anyway as the care receiver to connection. You know, even if it's just taking an extra moment. I mean, something like pregnancy and birth and new parenting, which are such like raw and sort of a, acute milestones in your life. And as a first time parent, like going through so many things that you can never really be prepared for. Like, I feel like, I'm gonna cry. like having, yeah. Anna, having Anna there just to, to like guide and support me through that process was just like I owe her so much more than I could ever explain, you know. So. Aww. <laughs> Our two phenomenal participants for being willing to put themselves in a vulnerable space and be open about their lives and experiences. That takes courage, people. If the stories the participants told today or any part of that conversation struck any kind of chord with you, I encourage you to share this with someone else who you think would appreciate it. Let's get this conversation started. Also, many, many thanks to the wonderful Caleb Martin Rosenthal for the melodious tunes you heard in this and every episode and to the illustrious Tessa Abaddon for our glorious cover art. For more thoughts on this episode and the other two, background info, feminist theory, and more, head on over to the blog that accompanies this podcast at caretosharepodcast.wordpress.com. Thanks for listening to Care to Share, where the personal is clinical.